0: Welcome everyone to the Classical Philosophy Podcast, with me again is Chris, up in Norwich. Today we'll discuss Il Principe, the Prince by Niccolò Machiavelli, and the book was written, am I right, to Lorenzo de' Medici, who was the Principe, the Prince of Florence at the time. And let me just say for now briefly that the book, there's a rumor, this might be a total legend, but if it isn't, and it makes it all the more fascinating, the book was actually not supposed to be published. That it was just a text written for the Medici so that he could use it as as a, a script on how to rule ruthlessly and without falling for any kind of idealistic version of or idea suggestions for for government. But what Machiavelli does here is he gathers all kinds of uh, various nefarious methods to maintain power and he gives very clear guidelines on how to come to power, how to hold power, The uh, <laughs> extreme, um, you know, it shows us uh, very extremely, uh, I mean, a, an early will to power, perhaps. And the idea then is that this book is esoteric. It wasn't meant for the public. It was leaked, one could say, to the public. And perhaps this is why he was exiled. So this is an esoteric work, I will read it as such, which was written for one man's eyes and one man's eyes only. And it was written in such a way that this man could maintain power, but also not just for himself, but also to recognize who he's dealing with in terms of power relations. Is the other party, the other prince, the other king did he come to power because it was given to him by the people did he come to power because he took it what kind of so how weak or how strong is my opponent or my partner my uh, competitor etc so this is what uh, i'd like to begin with and then i'll say a bit more on, on on history in in general in a bit but chris what are your initial
1: thoughts um yeah I, I i like the nature i'm not i'm we're probably gonna we might disagree on just how how much this is a kind of will to power um but i, I think nature is very is a relevant um figure to read uh, machiavelli alongside um i think i mean some of the some of the things that just my first impressions on reading this book i read it probably 10 years ago and um haven't read it uh, for a long time, one of the my first impressions was how just how Aristotelian it was. I was. I've read a lot of Aristotle since I've read that book, and I was just really struck by the style of it. I mean, the first chapter um, is titled "How many kinds of principalities there are, and what means they are required And to anyone who's read Aristotle, that's just a very Aristotelian chapter, right? It's a, this is a scientific inquiry. Um, He's doing, it and he's going to do it very methodically and very dispassionately. So that was one of the things that struck me. Um, the other is yeah, coming back to Nietzsche. This is a very, um, very there's a, there's an opposition between Machiavelli's style of politics and the Christian style of politics that um, maybe he's writing against. Um, and. Thirdly, I think just we need to talk about the two, the two key concepts um, in this book is our ability and fortune on the one hand. How much does fortune affect um, uh, at the way that things run in a state, how things go, whether things go well or badly, and how far can ability of an individual actually sway things themselves?
0: Okay um so ability and fortune maybe you can say a bit more about that in a bit he's so in terms of what what he's writing i think he's right he's it's it's a s- specific uh history and he's writing a history on in a sense to come commented from 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 Schelling he's not a historian in the antique. so Schelling and Nietzsche in one he's not a historian in an antiquarian sense so he doesn't care about all the the details of every single thing. He's not writing a universal history either. He's writing something a very specific. History that brings something to the fore and brings something actually carves out a certain form that maybe hadn't been done before in that sense and that reg- in that way, which is to focus solely on the prince or the king as the bearer of power and how power can be maintained. And he looks at different examples from history to do so. And also, interestingly, on, on some of the you know, prophets and really stri- extremely important uh, founders of cities like Romulus is one of the figures he focuses on and Moses, of course, as uh, Moses freed uh, the Jews from, from Egypt and guided them to towards Israel. And so I think that the, the, that's perhaps one of the, the reasons why the book's fascinating is that it, it carves out just this one aspect really well. And yeah, but let's talk about ability and fortune. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, yeah, we're constantly um, presented with this this concept, with this term, virtue. Or um the Italian filletu, um P I R T U, um, mm. which is which we need to, it's not doesn't translate as virtue, which is why it's sometimes useful just to use the Italian word, even though I sound a little silly when I do so. Um, but it's not, and this is relevant because what I was saying before, this isn't what Machiavelli is doing is is in some sense opposing the Christian um idea of um what a ruler should be um which is why the term virtue is is a difficult one to use and just like as i say nietzsche's uses the word virtue in in books like the genealogy and zarathustra and he wants to reclaim that word from the christian interpretation of it um, i think machiavelli is doing a similar thing obviously many hundreds of years earlier um, what machiavelli considers virtuous is creating uh, uh, conditions in a country which of stability yeah. um, mm-hmm. and order yeah um, if if those conditions hold then whatever it takes to create those conditions is he will consider virtuous <laughs> um so it, it goes against this christian idea of virtuous in yeah. terms of uh, certain acts so and certain what we would call virtues so um benevolence kindness uh, mercy is a big one for machiavelli yeah. you know he'll say things like okay it's all very nice to be to be merciful but what happens if that if being merciful uh creates a rebellion and or weakens a state such that it it could be invaded by um an outsider in in which case what you've done is many hundreds of people will be slaughtered because of this invasion um so what yeah. we thought was a virtue in being merciful actually has turned out to be um quite the opposite <laughs> yeah and uh the other one in terms of fortune, yeah. um he's um so there's a quote in chapter 20 sorry
0: sorry sorry sorry. now i found my quote i'll i'll let you finish unfortunately so this is chapter 15 sorry the things for which men and especially princes are praised or blamed the fact is that a man who wants to act virtuously in every way necessarily comes to grieve among so many who are not virtuous Therefore, if a prince wants to maintain his rule, he must be prepared not to be virtuous and to make use of this or not, according to need.
1: Absolutely, yeah. He is a um, a utilitarian uh, before the word. Um, everything, oh. it's it's all about um, results, and he wants to create these results, as I say, of this stability and this order. Um, and yeah, it, it's a whatever yeah. it takes.
0: Real politics, real
1: politics. Absolutely,
0: yeah. absolutely. Yeah, but the the, the the what I found striking about the Bush years, for example, um, is that those were, on some level, crudely real politic, real you know real political, real of real politics. But they were actually also it, there's this strange uh, idealism in politics these days, right? We do everything that we do, of course, is Highly model in the West, and we do everything just to save the planet and and bring democracy to everyone who doesn't who doesn't have who's not enjoying a McDonald's and a Kentucky Fried Chicken yet. Um, So they all get sucked into that. But according to Machiavelli, whom they've might have read, the the consultants of of these governments is that there will you know great grief will come to them. But anyway, so.
1: Well, yeah, this is, Machiavelli is all very aware of this, isn't he? He says, um, he says it's very important to be, to appear to be virtuous, <laughs> which is a nice way. Oh, okay. Of, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Saying, yeah. He says he, he um, I mean, he's not completely um, <laughs> against um, being, against these concepts of kindness and the Christian virtues and and being religious as well. He says it's very important that one should be considered to be religious. I and so,
0: so, so yeah, one just be, it's just about public perception
1: it's about yeah appearances and but again it's it's completely utilitarian one should appear to be a um a christian and and have the virtues simply because that will engender favor to you among the populace and that yeah, in, yeah. and that in turn will again accrue to the stability and order of yeah, yeah. the republic
0: it's incredible that the, the cold precision with, with which he describes how to take countries, right, or different, different principalities. Like chapter three, composite principalities. Although there is some divergence in language, so in France with Burgundy, Brittany, Gascony, Normandy. nonetheless, their customs are similar and they can easily get along together. So that's, yeah. that's, that's what matters. It's order, stability, and, and it's a, not chaos, but it, and of course, and to maintain that order, any means necessary are absolutely justified.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it might not sound odd, but I think one of the best places to start for this book is right at the end. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Chapter 26. Um, Very good. Italy has, um, I'll paraphrase, Italy has been reduced to extremity, more ex- more enslaved than the Hebrews, more oppressed than the Persians. <laughs> More scattered than the Athenians, without head, without order, uh-huh. beaten, spoiled, torn, overrun, and to have endured every kind of desolation. Yeah. So this is really the problem that Machiavelli is trying to solve throughout the book of the Prince. I think, and we might disagree on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where this is one of the reasons I think Machiavelli is so badly misunderstood. Um, we treat Machiavelli as if he's as if these these, these rules that he's um, formulating these principles that he's coming up with are meant for everyone. Um, you know, private citizens, um, you and me, but they're not as, as you said at the beginning, they are intended specifically for this figure of the Prince. Um, yeah. and it only, only these principles are only formulated so that we can get rid of this extremity, um, get rid of this oppression, um, this scattering, um, this disorder, um, and he's looking around. He's a patriot of Italy. He wants to see it um, restored to its former glory. He's um, he's pretty miserable at the state of things, about how easily Italy's being conquered, and um, and how really. And he's and it's it's wrong to say he doesn't. In my opinion, it's wrong to say he doesn't care about um, the ordinary people of Italy. I think he deeply does. Um, he's mm-hmm. he wants to see them prosper, and you can only prosper and you can only have all this wonderful stuff like families and friendship and um, businesses and prosperity and art. Only You can have. You can only have these things under conditions of order. You can't have a Michelangelo if um, the whole country is going to be invaded every 10 years. You mm-hmm. need to create these conditions um, of stability so that all that nice stuff can happen. And so this is why Machiavelli's misunderstood um, these principles that he's coming up with um, you know, the ends must be uh, reached by any means whatsoever, are not meant for you and me. They're meant specifically um, okay. for this leader.
0: Okay, I think that's a good point. Maybe I'll try and summarize and rephrase this to, as analytics often say, to flash it out a bit more. <laughs> it's, uh, so, what you're saying is it would be a misunderstanding, to because this book has become obviously a book that managers read. Uh, right, and, and, and people who are you know, in business and want to act aggressively, like as, just as they read Sun Tzu, the Art of War, uh, to go into their own private warfare um, in the in the business world. But you're saying this isn't just. As a, perhaps this was written for a prince and only for a prince to read. But that is not even significant. What's significant is that what he's describing is not simply for one man to take power and maintain power but that this taking of power is a pragmatic useful taking of power which serves the purpose of creating conditions of stability order and and ultimately then good (laughs) virtue Uh, but there are certain things necessary cruelty sometimes even um in order to get to that, but that's something that need not concern the public. But so his, his ultimate aim isn't, as sometimes perhaps is misunderstood, isn't just to argue for an absolutist or, or some sort of um, individual who takes power just to maintain power for himself, but to maintain power, yes, for himself, but as the sovereign, which makes the country, in that case, Italia, orderly. Yeah,
1: I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think every age reads, um, you know, the great books of history under its own terms. And I think that the, the modern interpretation of Machiavelli <laughs> tells you more about modern modernism than it does about Machiavelli. <laughs> yeah, early, okay, that's right? good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like that a idea. we individual, great individualist, individualist age, don't we? Yeah. Um, so... Um, so we're reading. So, the- it, uh, so we read this as it calls, uh and trying to uh, um, kind of um, acquire prosperity for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> when, when really, song yeah. uh, is yeah. very different. He's uh, <laughs> he comes from a much more communitarian age, a much more patriotic age, um, an age when the country is a real coherent thing. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, so it's that's that's. Uh, I think that's a very good point because what you're saying is, of course, under the the rule of neoliberalism where what, what, what it is is it's every individual for themselves, of course, um, so everyone in the city of London or wherever they are, the Wall Street, the financial centers of the world, they read this book perhaps and and find yeah you, you can find uh, good advice in there I, I I would assume on how to rule, but you only ever rule or come to power in that uh, respect, then, for yourself, but that's not what he's after. He's really after trying to um, bring Italy back to an old glory and trying to um, help or pr- provide guidance and consultation to the Medici on how to to do this and to how to maintain order. He has a, an interesting quote here from Livy, Justum enim est bellum quibus necessarium et pia arma ubi nulla nisi in armis spes est. And I'm reading from the translation. Because a necessary war is a just war, and where there is hope only in arms, those arms are holy. Yeah, that's that's something that's you know because to some degree we we like to think we no longer wage war. Well, of course we do. It's kind of concealed our warfare, and we would never quite put it like this, right? So we, we do go to Iraq and yeah, this is it's a little democracy, okay. but it's, it isn't. It's, there's a war on terrorism, which is invisible and you don't see it, and it go, goes on. There's a war on drugs, uh, for example. But it's it's rarely said that there could be a war that's just and necessary. I find maybe I'm wrong, but yeah. Anyways, it was just, it struck me that it's in there.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, there have, it's, there have been, obviously <laughs> just was in the 20th century. I think the, um, you know, the second world war is the most obvious one. Um, this disputes about whether the, it was necessary to go into the, the first world war and obviously, um, things like Vietnam, um, Korea, um, first uh, Iraq and the second Iraq invasion um, they all disputed hotly whether they were in any way necessary obviously there, I think there's a consensus that the second world war um, for the allies uh, was necessary guarantee and, and that was a just war but yeah I think few and far between recently um, yeah. and it obviously makes it a lot easier to as you say conceal that there is a war when we don't have things like um, when we have things like standing armies, like before in the Vietnam era, there was a lot more yeah. um, uh, well, well, public involvement in the Vietnam War because um, because there was the draft, wasn't there? And so anyone could be uh, conscripted to go and fight. Oh, it, and you, you also kind, of, knew, yeah, so one,
0: yeah, and one also kind of knew who one was fighting for. There's a chapter here on militias, or in general on military organisation. And he says the obvious, right? If if, if you use militias, they're, they're, you, you can't trust them. So, um, this is not something that that can, is sustainable. And then there's something else I find starting in chapter nine, that chapter in my translation is entitled The Constitutional Principality. Um, now, this is perhaps just a view of, of how people come to power. A prince can never make himself safe against a hostile people. There are too many of them. He can make himself safe against the nobles, who are few. So what he has to do is he has to pander a bit to the people, but not too much to the nobles. And it's interesting that he says here that the nobles have more foresight and are more astute. They always act in time to safeguard their interests. And they take sides with the one whom they expect to win. And also, that the, the nobles are actually always about trying to keep the people down. It's very, it's like reading into uh, the depths of, of, of power relations here. Something that's very, not, not very often perhaps considered is that in all polities, also in a democracy, that their power is at play. And there will always be a nobility they might not have noble titles, but they they might be perhaps um, some sort of a new elite <laughs> where, where, wherever they might be um and will you will be found to have a, yes, so what a prince has to do in order to build his own power on his people um is someone who does not despair in adversity, who does not fail to take precautions and who wins general allegiance by his personal qualities and the institutions he establishes, then he will never be let down by the people and he will be found to have established his power securely. So it is is not that it is a mistake to assume that if the people are in favor of someone, in one election, shall we say, because you've been benevolent or have given them benefits and you cannot rely on that. But you have to take power with the sword almost and then initiate your own or build your own institutions and lead by example.
1: Yeah, and um, that thing where you were saying about one not being able to depend on um, you know, if if you have fortune at one t- or if you have the favor of the people in one time, you might not have it in another time. He yeah. talks a lot in the end, and this, the this goes back the other. to yeah. and this goes back to the fortune and ability comparison. He says yeah. a lot of a lot of leaders, when things are going well, they, they simply just enjoy themselves and and assume that if it was going well now, then if I just do the same thing, it'll it'll always be this way. He says that you know he's a fool who doesn't shore up um like horn during the good times so that he has something for the bad times and yeah. one must always be alert and always be vigilant um, and always be preparing for things that might go wrong in the future um and this is what he says he's saying this about fortune. so the whole, the leaders who who come to a bad end will say ah oh, um you know i was doing all the right things and then fortune failed me and um and I lost, I lost uh, the favor of the people, and came to a bad end. Well, Machiavelli will say, no, you, you were, it wasn't fortune. It was you. You were not preparing yourself um, for a downturn. You were not um, showing favor to the people when you could. You were not um, maybe showing favor to the nobles when you needed to do that. You simply did not work hard enough. Yeah. So there's something. This goes back to the the opposition to the, the Christian outlook. Um, when something happens, it's not always providence. And so this is a very modern book um, in that sense. And this is um, things you know are okay, are uh, um, our fate is in is in our own hands. Uh, it's what he's saying there.
0: Okay. That's uh, uh, yeah. So in that sense, it's it's a m- modern book because it's already. Why? Because it's no longer relying on, on, on. Uh, just to repeat what you just said. Actually, on God's providence. So you can't blame God. You have to blame yourself. And something else while you were talking struck me, um, which is, because it's so. It's a prince. The prince is in charge. You, you, you said you have to prepare. You, as the prince, have to prepare. And if not, you will lose the favor of the people. But you also have to lead, as I said. One has to lead by example and install one's institutions well, and that means it all flows from from one end. But it has to be someone has to be able to build, or com- provide structures and institutions in such a way that they can actually maintain order. He says about German cities that they are very you know good because they can they they keep. Um, um, they keep a year's supply of food, water, um, and and whatever else is needed for livelihood for the public. And when we talked about when you talked about the prince, I just thought for a minute. So the responsibility is on the prince, and the prince is not a, a representative of some office, right? So it's not yeah. that you can just wait your turn of four or five years and then if something goes wrong you you blame it on the office or maybe you have to step down yes but the prince loses everything if he loses everything he's usually kings are either you know killed they're hung or exiled if we're a bit nicer to them as the German emperors uh wilhelm ii was exiled he wasn't he wasn't killed um but every other king that you hear of who, who doesn't do well usually hangs at some point, right? Um, so, but that rarely happens, of course, which is very good that it doesn't happen anymore. But um, I'm just saying that the, the the onus is on the prince, the full responsibility. So that comes back to the point you made in the beginning. Or, uh, uh, yeah, I think it was in the beginning when you said this this isn't just about yourself and how you could improve your, your power, um, or increase your power this is actually about how to maintain order and how then every means uh, is justified but it has to be for the greater public good shall we say? Mm. in order for there to be michelangelo <laughs> and not for, in order for there to be whatever right Maybe. we want yeah. a michelangelo we want beauty <laughs> we want a, <laughs> we want rome and uh yes and the renaissance he's a renaissance <laughs> figure isn't he yeah obviously Rinascimento.
1: yeah in, in in large part because he, there is this he's, a, he's going back to uh, the ancients right he's going back to he's looking back over the heads of of the great um, period of, of the medieval period back to Athens and back to Rome um, and that's that's why maybe I quibble with you when you said this was this was always intended just to be read by one person yeah. um, there's a bit where he writes, he's writing a letter to one of his friends and he, he describes uh, the way he works, the way he, um, he takes off um, the clothes of, of the town um, mm. all, all with dust and mud and then puts on the, the courtly robes and kind of communes with the mind, the great minds of the ancient world, um, the great political figures of the ancient world. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, there's a way in which this book is a kind of a conversation with those great writers, um, uh, the Plato's, the Aristotle's, and the the great Roman, uh, Marcus Aurelius, the great um, Roman political writers, in which say this is very much, I think this was intended um, to be read kind of, um, maybe not by Mm. other people, but by posterity, let's say. Um, And he wants wants this book to join kind of that great canon, um, I think of political works.
0: There's some other yeah, Um so that would mean that it so it's 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 perhaps written only for a few eyes for now, but it is written for posterity. Mm-hmm. And what I thought also is that what we usually co- refer to as Machiavellian, which is means usually taking power just for the sake of taking power, right, mm-hmm. is not appropriate.
1: Yeah, for no reading. Of the book. Yeah, it turns out Machiavelli was, was not very was not actually Machiavellian. Yeah,
0: but yeah, exactly. That's that's always the problem, right? Plato was not a Platonist. Um, that, that okay, yeah. So that makes sense. It's it's not so. So Machiavellian should actually mean taking power, yes, but in order to maintain order for the greater public good, which, for example, translates into stable institutions and allow for for example beautiful architecture houses rather than housing yeah i don't know if you saw that meme going around i thought father was wonderful i saw it on some social media somewhere um okay so but but he does have you know there are aspects where it it is quite ruthless no he Mm -hmm. so he points out in chapter sorry this is chapter 11 6 New principalities acquired by one's own arms and prowess, and there he says, "That is why all armed prophets have, that is why all armed prophets have conquered, and unarmed prophets have come to grief. Why? Um, because the armed prophet is well prepared, and the unarmed prophet is not. He relies on the people." So the one who relies on the people's benevolence will always be less powerful than the one who just takes power. All right, so that's perhaps the the more what we usually consider Machiavellian. So I'm just... But you would still say, obviously, even if someone takes power in that manner. For example, he speaks about prophets here. So he talks, in this chapter he talks, maybe I should have mentioned this, he talks about Moses, Cyrus, Romulus, and Tezois. But obviously Romulus, for example, very obviously, founds Rome. (laughs) Just the greatest empire of all times, right? Um, (laughs) Which some people say... uh, Still exists on some level, and obviously uh, still collapses on some other level. And so you, but so you, so, so even here, the armed prophet uh, needs to come to. So you, maybe you would you would agree or maybe disagree if I, if if on your reading, what, what this means is, the prophet who sees something great, as for example Romulus, the possibility of Rome, right, of his own kingdom. Even, even then, one has to accept that one needs to be able to take power and be armed and be armed properly, and not uh, deny that that's necessary. But even then, that's not Machiavellian in the usual sense, because even because obviously Romulus did not just want to take power for himself, but wanted to initiate in Rome.
1: Yeah, I mean oh, the, the point the The very simple point is the barbarians have arms, right and <laughs> they are going to crush you, yeah what they mean to crush you and to take over uh Italy, just like they ended the Roman Empire, and so you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, right you don't and this is part of his his opposition to the Christian virtues, yeah right? that's all well and good, but it's ultimately. It's decadent, right? This, and and is saying the same thing. It, it, it would all be lovely if, if we could just, if all we had to do was follow the Christian virtues. Yeah. But there's something important: it's, there's people's lives at stake here. Okay, if you believe that um, that yeah. order um, and something like the Roman Republic is better than than being uh, than the o- overrunning of Italy by the barbarians, yeah. then stand up and fight for it. Yeah, um, so yeah, but but he is, but, but there is something,
0: I agree, but there is still something that's so he is. He, he some of the things he suggests are just ruthless, right? For example, chapter five how cities or principalities which live under their own laws should be administered after being conquered. Um, so uh, so he says in republics, for whatever reason, there is more life, more hatred, a greater desire for revenge. The memory of their ancient liberty does not and cannot let them rest. In their case, the surest way is to wipe them out, or live there in person. So yeah. he has he has these obvious moments where he says, "Look, if if there is some as for example Carthage, uh, Carthage. I don't know how to pronounce it in English. Um, Carthage. Carthage. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So so he." To so the, the, wipe them out, at least in my translation, or he says in the same chapter, Whoever becomes the master of a city accustomed to freedom and does not destroy it may expect to be destroyed himself. Yeah, uh, and again, this is maybe
1: what I was I saying,
0: steeped in Christian morality here myself, perhaps,
1: right? Yeah, <laughs> what I was saying about, about this being an Aristotelian work, he is this is a yeah. political science, this isn't he's not a moralist, Um. he's not. Uh, A moral philosopher, he is telling you what he has learned from the study of history. If you do X, then Y will happen, and that's simply he's quite dispassionately telling you what what history tells us will happen when you do certain things. Um, And so it's always utilitarianism. It's always if I do X bad, then I believe that Y good will happen, and that the good is better than the bad, Uh, or more severe than the bad, or uh, or whatever um, but yeah, it's all about again, I go back to this this what I raised earlier about this yeah. about vices appearing to be or virtues appearing to be vices and vices appearing to be virtues, so chapter fifteen is is a good kind con- condescension um condensation of that point um, it says, a, a prince a prince need not make himself uneasy at incurring a reproach for those vices without which the state can only be saved with difficulty. So he's talking about really the saving of a state. This is really uh, in extremis. If everything is considered carefully, it, it, we've, it will be found that something which looks like virtue, if followed, would be his ruin. Mm-hmm. and by, by extension, the, the state's ruin. Um, while something else which looks like vice, yet followed, brings him security and prosperity. And I would say by extension, security and prosperity of the Republic. So. Yeah. It's, it's the the slogan is desperate times call for desperate measures, right? This is and this is I, I, I've said Nietzsche is a good person to read alongside, Hobbes is another person who's much more uh, contemporary. Um, he, he's he's much he's he's also uh, quite close to Machiavelli. Hobbes advocates an absolute monarchy. Yeah, um, that that's going to involve a whole lot of things which um our modern liberal minds kind of revolt at um but he's he's talking about stopping a civil war he's just lived through this civil war which modern um minds can't fathom the horrors of waking up every day and thinking that this will be it we're gonna be overrun this is death this is plague (laughs) and so a neighboring city city. yes um and it's
0: in Florence, for example where arch enemies and they're not really far apart yes
1: and 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 hobbes is quite quite a good psychologist in this he talks about um this what civil war does to people's minds as well he was kind of ahead of his time in this just mm. um it's one thing when you're you you feel you might be uh, invaded by a foreign army but you can see, you can see them coming on you and you and you're kind of your collective. Um at least you have each other in your own country. The yeah. civil war is just a whole order of magnitude worse because it's just you're you're suspicious of your neighbour, you're suspicious all the time, you're never at peace, you're never secure. Um and that's that's a kind of horror that he thinks um requires desperate mergers um to uh, to, to fend off. Hobbs Hobbes or Machiavelli? Uh Machiavelli uh, Hobbes, sorry.
0: Hobbes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just very briefly on Hobbes. Um, Hobbes will have, I think, has very much a much stronger, first of all, he wrote a lot more. He's also got a, almost a perfect materialist system, so he's got very different commitments in terms of maybe metaphysics or ontology than perhaps Machiavelli, but that's just a, as a maybe unimportant aside. In terms of Nietzsche, one thing I wanted to say that we could, I would understand this book as a case in point for a monumental way of writing history. So Nietzsche has this distinction in the use and abuse of history for life we distinguish between antiquarian, monumental, and critical historians. Critical historians are maybe perhaps what we're living through right now, where everything that was in the past necessarily was wrong, which is it's highly moralistic, right? Everything of earlier days was wrong. We are the pinnacle of reason and truth. Perhaps that's the remnant of um, the, the dying enlightenment movement, that we, you know, we're progressing every year. Therefore, any year past this must have been terrible. And so that's a critical, you can only look back, the critical historian can only look back and look at the world and, and the past and say, oh God, they were so wrong, Oh, terrible. We, we must tear down everything they've done. And the, the antiquarian is someone who's a, like a bookkeeper, he keeps details and taps on everything, knows every single year when something might have happened and who did what but it doesn't come together. And the monumental historian is someone who takes the examples and doesn't really care so much about details and fact facticity and you know, factuality. I mean, but brings it all into one form and that form then informs and brings about something that no one else perhaps in that way had seen before, but also lets, the prince in this in this in this uh, case live in a different way or yeah you know to be monumental means to be connected with the past on a different level than just the antiquarian for the antiquarian it's just something of the past for the monumental historian or a thinker it's something that's still breathing if that makes sense yeah yeah
1: um that's and so he says something in um, in chapter six uh, a wise man ought always to follow the paths beaten by great men huh. this is kind of what you're saying isn't it and to imitate yeah. those who have been supreme so that his ability does not equal theirs uh-huh. uh, at least it will savor of it um, and then there's another aristotelian bit: uh, let him act like the clever archers who designing to hit the mark which yet appears too far distant and knowing the limits to which the strength of their bow attains take aim at a much higher mark not to reach by their strength or their arrow to so great a height but to be able to but to be able with the aid of so high an aim to hit the mark they wish to reach yeah so like the archer again that just rings alarm bells for aristotle for me um but it's it's also a it's the great it's the great man view of history all right isn't it um one it's the genius view it's the the view that history um is shaped by great individuals and not the yep. um, mm-hmm. opposing modern view that history is shaped really by these underlying events that we can't really see, and and individuals really have little to do with it.
0: So that's the modern view. The, yeah. So so sorry. So you would. So the modern view would be that it's structures.
1: Yeah, no. that it's underlying structures and event and uh, events. Really? The, the the older view is the the great man view of history, which is like the nineteenth century Thomas Carlyle. Oh, um, by
0: modern, okay, sorry, by modern you mean contemporary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because
1: modern. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, The contemporary view. Um, yeah, that's yes, it. It's, it's going back to this, going back to the Aristotelian view, right? In which the way you are good is to follow the example of good uh, individuals, and this is why Aristotle says, you know, having Uh, good models, uh, good teachers is so important Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's what Machiavelli is saying here, that's what Nietzsche will say uh, later Um,
0: Yes, so it's a humanist view of history the human being at the centre and then of course some human beings higher, more important than others, it's the individual the sovereign individual who makes history rather than the postmodern or even Heideggerian view, where history is events and is structural and human beings are in, is responding to something. Um, okay, yeah, that, that, makes, that makes perfect sense, which is why he also, of course, focuses on the prince and the prophet, right? There's almost no distinction made between prince and prophet. I guess for him, the, the absolute optimum of a, of a prince is also a prophet is is moses is romulus is thesis or is cyrus who all acquired and founded kingdoms
1: yeah, right. <laughs> yeah i mean uh, they don't have necessarily have to be that that great I mean, he talks at the end of the book about um, Ferdinand Ferdinand of spain who's uh, who came from almost obscurity to to, to unify spain um to expel various forces that were um invidious to spain and uh, he's done a great job so he he's, he's not um he's not saying this is impossible and that these people come along once every you know thousand years this is very doable um it's just unfortunate for machiavelli that the person he wrote it to died about 5 years later and um was unable to do anything um with it but oh yeah this isn't an impossible ask that he's he's making that but, um, but still still it requires um, you know a great man, um, maybe not a genius, but certainly a great person who's who has this ability, this virtue, this force of character to seize history himself and not simply yeah uh, recline and
0: and it it yeah. is it is the strong individual. That fortune, so he says here, fortune, as it were, provided the matter. But they, meaning Moses and Romulus and Cyrus, gave it, gave fortune its form. Without mm-hmm. opportunity, their prowess would have been extinguished, yes. And without such prowess, the opportunity would have come in vain. But so it needs the strong individual who, well, as Nietzsche says, the, the, the blonde beast or something, who... Makes fortune his own, who gives it form. So it's Moses who had to find the Israelites, in my translations, the Hebrews, the Jews, in in servitude, and then free them. That was actually his fortune, so that he become he became Moses.
1: Yeah, he's he's saying at the end um cometh uh cometh or there's a, a phrase cometh the age cometh the man or cometh the hour cometh the man in which uh, events are so um or in which situations are so um formed that they call forth a, a great a great hero a great actor to step up um, and seize the moment and he's saying that's what moses did that's what all these great figures did mm-hmm. and that's why he's saying it that that's why this is probably rhetorical. At the end, that Italy is in such a bad shape, the way it's been reduced to extremity, more enslaved than the Hebrews, more oppressed than the Persians, etc. He's saying that the time is ripe. Okay, the conditions yeah. are here. This is as bad for the Italians as it was um, for the yeah. Jews in Egypt. Okay, there's cometh the, the man. This is what he's saying.
0: But actually, to your point, and I think I said this already, but maybe just to stress it again a bit, is when he, you know. Giving, the fact that he gives the example of Moses obviously is obviously not someone who takes power just for the sake of his own power, but in order to free his people that's from a good point, slavery, yeah. and 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 even more than just that, not just freeing from slavery, which is magnificent in his own way, but also to lead them, and that's of course the tragedy of of maybe the of Israel itself is you know, bring them home, and that totally, totally isn't about just power. Yeah, no, that's right. It's, it's, so it's about, um, so that we've now cracked the nut. When people say Machiavellian, they get it all wrong. Yeah. So you must listen to the classical philosophy podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely.
0: If not, you, you'll, you know, you'll lose wrong categories for the rest of your life.
1: And and listen to our podcast on Thus Speak Zarathustra" to get um, more context on what we've been talking about.
0: I think that we have have agreed already that we should talk on. Uh, we should do another one on Nietzsche. So we. Yeah. Will. I Was just thinking we'll we'll talk about which one, but we'll do that in the coming month or so. Um. So yeah, is there anything more that we should add, for now, or have we kind of put the world to rights? And- I think so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Enough for uh, enough for this week.
0: <laughs> enough for this week, and yeah, more truth, truth next 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 week. So thanks very much for listening everyone. Please subscribe to the channel, leave a comment and support us on Patreon. Thank you very much.